Hello, everyone. It is Friday, February 7th, 2020, and this is the podcast version of New Mexico in Focus for the week. Before we dive into the stuff from the show this week, I wanted to remind you all, if you enjoy this podcast, if you're interested in what's going on in the legislative session and all things New Mexico government, that we have another podcast you should check out. It's called the Your NM Gov podcast, and we're doing it in partnership with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter with financial help from the Thornburg Foundation and the New Mexico Local News Fund. Cleo Ecolona over at KUNM host it, it hosts it. It's a nice daily, short, quick summary of kind of the big things going on in the session. So it's a great way to keep up to date on all things in the roundhouse. And you can find it on Spotify, iTunes, Anchor, Breaker, Radio Public, you name it. So go check that out. Let us know what you think. Be sure to give us a review, subscribe, share that word with friends. Speaking of the legislature, we got a lot of that on the show again this week as we just passed the halfway point of this 30-day budget session. And that's where we start. Great conversation about the budget discussion so far and the spending that's going on. A lot of debate over whether it's too much, too fast, or just catch up from years where we had to raid lots of funds and and try to uh, cut back to make the budget work. One big thing to pay attention to here is the discussion over the Opportunity Scholarship. This is the governor's plan to make college free for all New Mexico students. It had a setback this week, but also thoughts that it can be revived before all is said and done. So with that, let's turn it over to Gene Grant and the line panelists. The State House of Representatives has passed a $7.5 billion budget for next year. It includes raises for state workers and teachers, about $2,000 for teachers making the state minimum. It also features $200 million for the new Early Childhood Education and Care Department. It's more spending, but is it too much or is it not enough? Let's ask the line opinion panel. First up, we welcome line regular and attorney Laura sanchez Reve. Always good to have you here. Another line regular, former New Mexico House Minority Whip Daniel Foley joins us. We also welcome line guest Dave Mulryan, founder of Everybody Votes. And Catherine McGill is back. She's the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Now, Catherine, I'll start with you. Is there a signature, signature program of funding strategy that you like in what you've seen so far? What, 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 what grabs you during this whole scrum we're having here? Uh, about the Opportunity Scholarship and uh, you know, I, I think it's great that we're talking about higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, $35 million, is it going to do the job? And um, first dollar, middle dollar, last dollar, mm-hmm. you know, which approach are we going to take? But what I really want us to look at is, is accessing college the goal? Mm-hmm. Or is graduating the goal? Uh-huh. And is this money going to get us to more people graduating? When we look at some of the statistics and the research, they talk about the fact that you know more people start to access, but it doesn't necessarily have a great impact on the number of people who complete college. Mm-hmm. So I think all along the pipeline, we have to go back and look at uh, from early childhood, and I'm glad that we're investing more money in early childhood, but all along the way, what is our real goal, you know, and are students reaching literacy and numeracy uh, in what we do? And I had a friend who said that if you have a problem that can be solved by money, that you don't have a problem. And I suggest that this particular problem can't be solved just with money. Right. 
I like that. I like that quote there. Whoever that friend was. Robert Clump. Thank ah, you. There you go. Right on. Daniel, the idea I'm going to counter here a little bit. Uh, I, I, in my setup, I asked, is it enough or is it too much? A little bit of pushback from Republicans about this whole thing going on. I found it interesting that Jason Harper is proposing to have a 4.3% annual cap on the rate of spending increases, mm -hmm. which is very interesting to me. I'm not sure how much chance that has. But uh, what's your sense of how we're approaching the money we have uh, at hand right now? Yeah, so we've, you know, look, we've never had, I don't feel like this state's ever had a revenue problem. We have a spending problem. Gotcha. And we've had it across all governors. Um, you know, I've said this before, Gene, you know, mm -hmm. we get in tough times, we cut everything 10%. So to me, I don't understand why we're funding things at 90% that don't work and cutting things 10% that do work. Uh, I think the Republicans' heartburn in the budget is not necessarily so much the growth because I can tell you, you know, once people get up there, you know, it's amazing how you can come from a home that makes fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year and in just a short amount of time a billion dollars doesn't mean much to you. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, what I think the heartburn is is the recurring the recurring costs. Gotcha. Uh, you know, putting in programs that hey, we got this wind this windfall of money, so we're gonna create an early childhood development program, an opportunity scholarship, we're gonna expand Medicaid, we're gonna do all these different things mm -hmm. that when the money dips you still got to pay for that. So um, I think the Republicans would like to say, I think they would say, you know, as we did when I was there, we're not opposed to investing that money, but you can't invest, you can't take your one-time bonus from work and buy a new house and say, now I can make my payment. You might want to fix the house. You may be able to go pay cash for something, mm -hmm. but to add as a monthly payment is going to be a problem. So I think that's some of the heartburn. Is it too much? Look, we've sat around this table, Gene, you and I have knocked heads for 15 years on this, right? There's not a problem you don't think money can fix. Yep. I don't think money can fix any problem. Um, you know, we look at the education system in New Mexico. We have tons of issues facing education in New Mexico, but I could tell you when you compare us nationally, funding ain't one of them. Mm -hmm. We're in the upper third every year of the percentage of budget, the amount of money going to public education. I just think there's a huge gap between funding in Santa Fe and classrooms. Mm -hmm. And the more you throw into that gap doesn't mean you're going to fill the gap, you're just burning that money. So I would like to see, you know, before we start talking about expanding programs, spending more money, we should be hitting a reset button right now. We have the time and we have the money to say, let's look at what's working. Let's grow that. Sure. Let's grow on the things that are working. And mm -hmm. let's let's take a step back. Because in state government, as we all know, nothing, once you create something, That's it right. seems to never go you away. You can't really rule it back. Dave, on that point, uh, Kathy brought up the uh, Opportunity Scholarship Fund. That committee hearing turns yes. out people want to kind of pull back a little bit and put some more money into right. things that are, are already in place. To Dan's point, is there a middle ground on that? I mean, the governor really, really wants to have this Opportunity Scholarship Fund. Right. Is it going to survive? I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. Well, I mean, you know, again, Molly Ivins was very clear when she once wrote, government is like a hammer. You can use it to build up or you can use it to tear down. Sure. And, you know, money certainly helps. But we need to be real. We have facts. There's a statistics department at UNM that tracks their dropout rate, which is 50%. Mm -hmm. Eastern New Mexico University graduates 17% of their kids. You know, New Mexico Highlands is not much better. I mean, we are looking at a failure rate of half. I mean, that's absurd. Mm -hmm. And you can throw money at it. We've thrown a lot of money at it. Yet, I think we're missing leadership. We need a lot of people in a lot of positions to say, if we let you into UNM, we expect you to graduate from UNM. Whatever that takes. And, you know, Smith College, which is a women's college in Massachusetts, very well known for their graduation rate. They, they actually started paying 
women who were poverty, you know, in poverty, they paid their rent because it didn't affect how they could get their benefits. We need new thinking, we need leadership. I mean, if the governor says, I need a 90% graduation rate from UNM, that helps a lot, and that doesn't cost a lot of money. Yeah. And you know, UNM can do it. If you look at their presidential scholarship program, 450 kids per class, that's 1,800 kids that go to UNM, they have a graduation rate of 98.5% higher than Harvard's graduation rate. So that institution, if they decide, can graduate kids at a great rate, and we should make that available to all the kids. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that we just, we need to say, get into UNM, get out of UNM with a degree no matter what. This makes Kathy's point she made earlier. It's yes. not about the front end, it's about the back end, who's right. coming out of it. Uh, but we do have raises for teachers, uh, second year in a row, and I don't know if there's much argument about that. Uh, is that something that, you know what I mean? It, it's a start, as they say, to get this thing going, but we're, what's missing here from this, from this discussion that, that folks are not so warm to this idea? Uh, well, I think that, you know, there has been some agreement. I think mm -hmm. it comes down to the percentage, the amount of the increase. Okay. So there was 5% for uh, teacher pay raises, 4% for other education employees. Mm -hmm. Those other education employees are also critical to the classroom. Right. Um, in many cases, we're talking about educational assistants um, who help with some of the most vulnerable populations in our, in our schools, mm -hmm. um, special education uh, students, students with... Um, you know, language issues, all kinds of um, additional employees mm -hmm. to help teachers. And so I think that's a really critical population for them to focus on as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course the 3% bump up for state workers, which I think is important right. as well. We end up, you know, I think it's really difficult to get state government done. I work a lot um, on issues at the PRC and the PRC is chronically underfunded. Um, and they've, I mean, you end up attracting folks who aren't necessarily, you know, gonna be at the top of their game sometimes sure. and, or, they're not necessarily inclined to work as hard because of the incentives. Now, the people at the PRC work super hard, sure. but they also could use a huge um, increase in pay. Um, I know them in particular, but mm -hmm. beyond that, I, I did see some interesting parts um, in the budget that the House passed out of committee. Mm -hmm. um, 76 million to shore up para. Yes, um, I was about to ask. Mm -hmm. The Public Employees Retirement um, System, it's, it needs to be fixed, and I think More that's than a broken. huge. Yeah, it's, it's beyond mm -hmm. broken. Mm -hmm. They also had 250 million for road projects, which right. is an infrastructure infusion of jobs. Really, when you think about that, that's a really important aspect. That's right. And then what I found interesting is that they have a two billion dollar, two billion dollars in cash reserves which represents 26%. Mm -hmm. um, that's higher than normal. That's a high cash reserve. Let me, let me ask you on that question, that cash reserve. I'm going to throw this out to uh, the others as well. We have to have a signal to the credit system out there as well, that we're solid. We're on solid ground here. We're not just spending everything we have coming in. Is that going to be enough to send that signal? It's going to be... I think that's a pretty... I mean, that's a... Uh, high number. That's yeah. been higher than, than in past years. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a good reserve to have at this point when you have extra funding. But this particular budget does represent about 529 million more above current levels. Mm -hmm. And I think to Dan's point, you know, it is concerning. I think if you when you look at where we've been, especially in 2016 when we had to cut so many programs mm -hmm. um, and cut funding so much, to now expand that much, 7.5 percent right. above current levels. I mean that that creates an unfunded. Yeah mandate, right? You're continuing to mm -hmm. um, grow programs. And I think as Dan said, there's some reason to that, which I can't believe we're agreeing, but. <laughs> Hell Mary full of grace. Well, you know, interesting, let me turn to Kathy on that. You know, the idea that we have to catch up a little bit. We heard this after uh, the Johnson administration, the Richardson people said that, and that's mm -hmm. why they spent. You, you see what I mean? You know, the Martinez folks and now the, uh, Lujan Grisham says we have to catch up. This is why we have to spend. We keep doing this crazy yeah. roller coaster thing. Deferred maintenance. You right. have to sometimes go catch up and, and fix the house. And I right. think that 
uh, that's what they're attempting to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I, I would say that, you know, what, what Dan is saying is true is that, that we don't want to overreach, we don't want to overspend. Mm -hmm. But I think that some of these issues about education, fixing the problems that face education are really, really important. Mm -hmm. The question is, did we, you know, are we doing it the right way? Are we creating the efficiencies where we need to create them? Uh -huh. And is that money being well spent? So we talk about right. addressing some of these problems, like in, higher, about a minute, if you like in higher education. Mm -hmm. but, but look what the higher education institutions did to the lottery scholarship, mm -hmm. right? They drained it. I mean, the minute they found they could raise tuition and fees, and the lottery scholarship keeps pace with it, now we're going to come up with this opportunity scholarship. If they don't think through, the, especially the things they know that are going to happen, right? The minute we throw that pile of money out there, it's like blood in the water for sharks in higher ed. They'll come at it and get as much as they can. But we also and have to remain competitive in this state I agree. with other mm -hmm. with other states. I mean, I think that. I think that higher education is often, you know, an easy target because sure. they they do have they have higher um, salaries. They they have to attract talent, though. That's right. We have to remain competitive with other states. Otherwise, we're going to lose credibility and we're going to lose students to better schools. A good point there. The budget also includes a very small number that's attracting a lot of attention: nine hundred thousand dollars for the new ethics commission. That's twenty-five percent less than the commission's director says it needs to be able to monitor state government. In your New Mexico government news, correspondent Gwyneth Dolan went to the roundhouse this week to see if lawmakers were hamstringing the group that's supposed to keep an eye on their behavior. She also found a new effort to change the way the state draws its legislative districts. And as you heard, now we want to continue on the legislative front. Funding also an issue with the newly formed New, Me New Mexico Ethics Commission. The group had asked for $1.2 million to fund their work this year, and the budget right now has them at about $900,000, so a pretty big cut there. And there's a lot of con questioning, concerns about this group having to go to the legislature every year with their handout for money to fund something that is, in effect, supposed to keep them honest and on the ethical track. So Gwyneth Doland, as part of our Euro New Mexico government coverage, headed up to the Roundhouse to talk to some lawmakers about that. In, in addition, the Ethics Commission could also be involved in redistricting efforts after this year's 2020 census count. So she talked to them about efforts to reform how we do that as well. And on the census front, we should mention we were uh, thrilled to be over at KUNM Radio this week for their Let's Talk New Mexico show, which was all about the census count and why it's so important and what you need to know and how to make sure that you are doing it correctly. We were able to put that up on Facebook and YouTube Live when it happened, but those videos are still up there archived now, so we invite you to check that out as well. Right now, Gwyneth Doland and her visit to the Roundhouse. Senator Mark Moores is sponsoring a proposal that would ask the state to study the way we do redistricting and look at alternatives to that. Senator, thank you for being with us. Pleasure. Why do you think we need to do things differently? You know, all governments rely on being, having the support of their people. In a democracy and in a republic, we have to have faith in our processes. 
And the situation in New Mexico is we have politicians who have been in the legislature for years and years and decades even. And they're the ones actually going out and picking their constituents by drawing their district maps to meet what they want. We don't have a situation where the constituents and voters are able to pick their legislators. And I think that's egregious that we have that situation in New Mexico and it doesn't lead to support of our Republican, our democracy. So you're saying the way we do redistricting now allows that to happen. What could make us do it differently? What do you want to change? The way we have it now is that every 10 years, an incumbent politician is able to draw their own district and say, I want those people as my constituent, as opposed to the constituent saying, I want that person as my legislator. What we need to do is take it out of the legislators' hands for their own districts. We need to have actually be able to look at these districts that provide fair and balanced representation across the state so that people have the ability to elect their legislators instead of their legislators picking their constituents. For many years now, the legislature has debated and rejected the idea of an independent commission to do this job. Is that the only way to end the practice of legislators picking their own districts? There are many ways. In fact, New Mexico is probably the one of the worst states when it comes to this. Any improvement would be better as far as I'm concerned. There are ways to go all the way to an independent redistricting commission that's set up in our constitution to all the way just going back to listing what criteria we're going to do, including not caring where your, the incumbent lives. Last time we did redistricting 10 years ago, one of the criteria is where that legislator lived. I don't care where the legislator lives. I want to have that representation for that community, for the cities, the counties, for the pueblos and the tribes, actually as the basis, not the number one criteria of where that legislator lives. One of the problems that folks have identified in the way that we do this is that our races are not very competitive. Would changes to the redistricting process introduce more competition into our elections? A democracy requires that people actually run against each other. And when you gerrymander the system so much that you don't have competitive races and people don't have a chance to run against that incumbent, we really don't have a democracy. We just have people staying in office for years and years. We have to be able to actually have these competitive races and part of that is how we draw our districts. Representative Damon Eli has been working on proposals around the redistricting topic. Representative, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Is this primarily a partisan issue the way we've seen that in other states? I think we can start with redistricting. Setting up a redistricting commission can be partisan. I am fully committed to setting up a redistricting commission because members are literally picking their own districts. And that's a conflict. We should not be doing that. If you do it by statute, that then becomes a partisan issue because then as administrations change and parties change, what we've seen around the country is the statutes change. So you have to do this by constitutional amendment so that once the voters have spoken and they want a redistricting commission and then we have to do it like with the Ethics Commission, then the partisanship hopefully gets taken out we have a fair district, and most important to me is we remove ourselves from the conflict where we're picking our own districts, which I don't like. You want to do this by constitutional amendment. Do you think you can get enough votes to get it out to the voters? It's not in front of us this session. It, I am going, I've committed to doing that in the next session, in the 60-day session. 
I don't know, to be honest with you. I think so. I think as people start to see it in a fair light, I'm always optimistic. Um, so maybe is the best answer I can give you. Another tough fight that went by constitutional amendment was the Ethics Commission. The commission is set up, uh, people have been hired, commissioners have been appointed, um, and the issue right now is money. Correct. Why has the legislature so far been reluctant to give the Ethics Commission the money that it needs in order to function? I want to be clear about this. I don't think it's the legislature. The, the legislature clearly passed an Ethics Commission, and the governor's budget, by the way, I want to say for the Ethics Commission, meets what the Ethics Commission mean, it needs. The governor's, uh, the legislative budget, the House budget, has shorted them $300,000. I have talked to everybody I can in the building that that's not going to work. We do not want the Ethics Commission, particularly a commission that's overseeing our actions, to have to get their tin cup out every year and beg for money. That's not sustainable. Just like with the redistricting, it's a conflict. So we're still early on in the process. There's going to be negotiations. But do I like right now the House budget, $900,000 instead of the $1.2 million they're asking for? No, I do not. Will I vote for the budget today to start that conversation? Yes. But when it comes down to it, they're going to have to be fully funded. And that's becoming a problem where we are passing, I think, good policy, but then we are not so good at making sure that it's financed adequately. And this is an example of that. And so I'm hopeful. We still have half the session left. There's a long period of negotiations to go through, but we have to fully fund them. You know, in other states where legislatures have seen high-profile uh, investigations by ethics commissions, they have neutralized the commissions by not funding them. Do you think this is an attempt, this reluctance is an attempt to neutralize the commission? No. The, I, what I've been hearing is there's a misunderstanding as to what the Ethics Commission's budget includes. For example, it includes a public information officer, so I think the finance people were concerned about that. But that's necessary because that public information officer is going to be responsible for setting up a website, for, set, for tracking complaints. They're setting up a new agency, so they need a technical person to be able to set that up correctly. So I think it's that kind of disconnect. I don't see anything more nefarious than that. Senator Stefanix, we've been talking about the Ethics Commission. So far, the House has not given the Commission the amount of money it's asked for. When the budget comes over here to the Senate, do you think you'll give it the extra 300000 that it's looking for? Well, I hope so. But the House Bill 2, the budget, will go to Senate Finance Committee. And I and many of the other members of the Senate don't sit on Senate Finance Committee. It does have Republicans and Democrats. It's led by Sen Senator John Arthur Smith. And there are several things from the House budget that probably will be changed to include cuts that they've made or extra projects that they put in to try to make state government whole. So that will be an opportunity for them to take the request that was 1.2 and only got 900,000 in the budget and put in the extra 300,000. That's about 25% of their budget. And so for a small agency, that's a lot of money. If it was a very large agency and they didn't get 300,000 or they didn't get half a million or a million even, 
you know, they'd go, oh, shucks. But for a very small agency, that's a lot of money that they didn't get. If it doesn't get the money, does it send the message that the legislature doesn't want it to happen? I think it sends the message that the legislature still doesn't think it's important to fund. Not that it's uh, not important, period, but that it's just not important to fund yet. Up next this week on the line, there was an article out, and really a study that looked at New Mexico's great track record of having diversity of voices in elected uh, seats in the roundhouse especially, but also on the federal congressional front. So the group talked a little bit about why they think we seem to be doing better in that area and maybe where we can still improve. Uh, Laura Sanchez-Ray got some great points there about women's representation in particular still in the roundhouse. Also in this section, speaking of a diversity of voices, there was a little brouhaha that stirred up this week around giving of the invocation to start the day, specifically in the House. It happens every day of the legislative session. One of those invocations got a little political and some people complained and the Speaker of the House changed the policy. So now members of the body will be giving that invocation from now on moving forward. So we talk a little bit about that as well and what's appropriate and what's not. Here now again, Jean Grant in the line. Gwyneth's coverage is part of the Your New Mexico Government Project. That's a partnership with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. One of the things Gwyneth tries to do each week is to get a diverse mix of lawmakers to talk to, whether that means political persuasion, gender, geography, or a host of other considerations. It's not always easy, but the 538 website points out, New Mexico does it better than most when electing diverse women to public office. We'll start this line discussion with diversity on that 538 article, and Dave, the authors say New Mexico has a long history of electing women of, of color, starting with Soledad Chavez Chacon being elected Secretary of State way back in 1922. Women have role models here. It's a very interesting thing, and things build when, once you start, isn't it? It's very well, interesting. It is, and, and mm -hmm. you know, I thought the article was quite interesting because it invoked um, Stephanie Garcia Richards, who was the state land commissioner. Right. But. I, I would hedge it a little bit by saying I was I was running a PRC campaign and we kept intersecting with her campaign when she was running for the state land office. Yeah. I mean, this woman, you can look at her, she is a gifted politician, right. whether she is male or female. And I think that, you know, when you look at her her record in the House and how good she was, um, I, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not it's a female thing or it's a good politician versus a not a good politician. But That's fair. I think that it's also a question of, you know, with impeachment that happened this week, one you could only help but think about Barbara Jordan, who gave that speech coming out of the House Judiciary Committee, which kind of someone one could say caused Richard Nixon to resign. That's right. And so I think that, you know, I get a Just little bit... Just in case anybody doesn't know, Barbara Jordan, a legendary woman of color, black woman from Texas. From Texas, who was right. Gave this quite amazing speech right. at the House Judiciary Committee mm -hmm. invoking, you know, Alexander Hamilton and the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, this idea that a person, you know, this identity politics is something, but you, you, when you see a good politician, if you have an eye for it, you know it's a good politician. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I'm not convinced that we do anything special here except we have women who are good politicians. Pick up on that, Catherine, if you would. Is, is, it, is it what Dave's saying or is there something extra here we're, we're not seeing? Um, I, I would agree with him yeah. um, and 
Um, my pastor back in Muskogee, Oklahoma, used to call me his little Barbara Jordan. Oh. And so I loved Barbara Jordan. Um, and I do think that we have, you know, lots of women who are active um, in in politics in New Mexico. And Emerge is doing a lot to train uh, mm -hmm. women to run for office. Mm -hmm. And they've been very successful in winning. And, um, and, and, and one thing that I will say about the article is that when people talk about women of color that they kind of exclude black women in that in New Mexico. It sort of follows that tricultural narrative again. And so it's not necessarily true for black women, although we do have two. Um, and, and the article right. also talks about the fact that it's not just the number of women, That's but right. the positions they hold. Well, we should mention, of course, Cheryl Williams Stapleton. Yep. Institution. She, yep, she is. She's Jane Powell Yeah. Institution. Two. You know, she's been there uh, forever and we hear yep. her voice. Dan, you know from Every state of the state address, we hear her voice, uh, you know, kind of leading the charge there. Your, your sense of this about women in diversity and how, you know, it's worked in New Mexico, is it just second nature for us now? We don't think about it that much and, you know. Well, I mean, you know, people got to remember we're a majority minority state. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not like we're talking about, you know, we've got this diversity where, you know, the overwhelming majority of people in the state are, are people of non-color. This, mm -hmm. this is a true majority minority state. So I think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I think having a citizen legislature is helpful, mm -hmm. right? Because I mean, I think it gives an opportunity for more people that have time to get involved right. that, you know, if we were paying people $250,000 a year, you might not see that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, look, we served with tons of, I served with tons of women. I mean, Cheryl William Stapleton is a good friend of mine. Jane Padrell is a good friend of mine. Um, you know, they're great people. Look, Cheryl and I, I don't think we voted for the same piece of legislation ever. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you couldn't find, you know, people that care more about their constituencies and what they're working on in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I think it is unique in New Mexico. And I think it's a, an, a uniqueness that we should embrace. I mean, I, I remember when I served in the legislature, even on the, you know, the Republican side, you know, we had African-Americans, we had Hispanics, we had married women, we had single women, we had young, we had old, we had Native Americans. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it seems to, the diversity seems to cross party lines in New Mexico too, mm -hmm. which I think is even, is even more mm -hmm. of a telling uh, tale for our state yeah. than, than it is just the numbers in general. Pick up on that if you would quickly, the, the idea that, again, is this just second nature for us? It's something that we just do and don't think about. I mean, I think that New Mexico uh, culturally is more open probably yeah. to it, but I also think that it's, uh, there's somewhat of a generational issue. I uh -huh. mean, uh, of course, Cheryl Williams Stippleton and Jane Padrell have been there for a very long time, so they're both, right. in, they are institutions truly and, and great leaders. Mm -hmm. But I do think also that, you know, when I first moved to New Mexico after having spent time in Arizona in politics, worked in California, I was surprised at, at how few women there were in general, not just women of color, but women mm. compared to other states. In Arizona, I mean, I lived there at the time when we had 50% women, wow. and it was bipartisan. And I also lived there at the time when we had the Fab Five. All five executive oh, yeah. offices were held by women. Right. And so um, I came here, and, and it very much felt like it was much, it was much more male-dominated right. across both you know, there was a lot of Hispanic and there was a lot of um, um, non-Hispanic, I don't know, <laughs> other, other. Sure. And so, but it does reflect, I think, um, <clears throat> culturally what we see in the state a lot more. But I, I also think there's been some very 
specific efforts to try to get more diverse voices elected right. um, on both sides, really. I sure. mean, we just had, you know, a Latina, first Latina governor ever right. um, Republican. That's right. So there's been efforts on both sides That's to right. increase the numbers. Good points there. The diversity is really an easy topic to discuss. One place where the issue came to a head is the well of the House of Representatives, <coughs> where in January, Native activist Lee Mokino delivered an invocation in both English and Tewa that reminded lawmakers of Santa Fe's native past and called for less drilling near Chaco Canyon. That irked some lawmakers. The House has since had members say the invocation, and the Senate disinvited Mr. Mokino from a planned invocation there this month. Laura, I want to come back to you on this. The invocation is usually a benign affair. I mean, did Mr. Mokino overstep, or uh, did Speaker Egoff's decision smack of po politics? Or how did how did you read that? You know, I can see both sides of this. Okay, issue. I really can. Um, I think it's. Uh, <laughs> You know, when you have somebody who's who's got a history of activism <clears throat> mm -hmm. doing an invocation, I think you you have to expect that they're coming. right. You got to expect right. that there's going to be something much more edgy than a normal, you know, than a than a regular sort of sure. invocation. And so I think, you know, I think he spoke from his heart. I think he was speaking about his truth and and his experience and including that as part of mm -hmm. a blessing. Mm -hmm. um, and I, but I can also see the other side of it where people were, you know, they expect to have an invocation that's, you know across different, um, right. you know, across the aisle, across different issues. Mm -hmm. You don't want it to be one-sided or have it be political because mm -hmm. it's really important to a lot of people mm -hmm. to have that invocation right off the bat. You know, no, uh, let me get to Dave here real Absolutely. quick. Absolutely, sure. Can I get everybody in here? Um, the uh, interesting little footnote there, he was filling in that day, actually. Right. And, right. It, you know, maybe he just, the speaker didn't know what was up. I don't know if they ask, what are you going to talk about? What, you know, what's the invocation? Who knows? Yeah, I mean, you know, you we know. can always argue First Amendment rights. He gets to say what he wants, right? right? But I think that also, you know, when someone invites you to do something, it's a pretty high-level, high-profile thing that you do. Being polite and maybe not pushing a political agenda would be my suggestion. He mm -hmm. gets to do what he wants. Sure. Um, I think that the, the lawmakers, I mean, if everything is political about it, even when you're doing the invocation, I mean, mm -hmm. could we just have a little bit of a break? I, I think, you know, we could have just done it, keep it simple, right. and move on. You can, there's plenty of time to lobby in the hallways. Sure. You know, Jim Townsend, Artesia, you know him. I, I know he had a problem with it. He said, the quote was, I agree with Speaker, with the Speaker that politically charged prayer has no place in this chamber, end quote. Yeah, you know, when I was there, we, we you know, we had a longstanding rabbi that did a lot of it for us. Um, and he passed away a few years ago. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, Catholic priests, we had people brought, you know, and it was always, you know, I just felt like, you know, it was always asking to bless the chamber, asking everybody to work. You know, it was always kind of a nice little start to the day, right? It was kind of like mm -hmm. that that speech before the- Before the mudslinging. Yeah, before the mudslinging. Right. Like, yeah. right. Can we all just get along, can we all respect each other? Right. Just remember God's watching everybody, you know? And even even the folks who came in who, you know, were, I, I don't know what the word is, they'd come in and they'd talk about like Mother Earth and they were very, you know, nobody got up and was like, you know, Mother Earth wants you to stop drilling. Um, right. I, I just think it was—I just think it was really poor taste uh, to go into a place to give this invocation. Right. Uh, invocation means prayer. It doesn't mean speech. It doesn't mean rally. And you know, not try to walk out of there and say, "Look, I brought both sides together, gave them a few seconds before the bell rang and the fight was on," mm -hmm. to kind of reflect on what they should think of. And I think it was the right move by the speaker to say we're just it. going to stop it. Yeah. You know what, just to push back a little bit though, sure. I mean, I've been, I've sat in, I mean, I was raised Catholic, I consider myself recovering Catholic, but I've sat through, you know, uh, invocations, blessings, um, sermons that incorporated a lot of political views. Interesting. Um, you know, anti-abortion views. Ah. Um, you at know, the roundhouse? Not at the roundhouse, oh. but well, I'm saying if we're going to talk about blessings being non-political, many 
many clergy incorporate, you know, political agendas into their sermons. Mm -hmm. I think they should have given some parameters, you know, to mm -hmm. anybody who comes up to say that this is a non-political moment and that we just want to ask people to uh, invoke divine right action. And yeah. um, and then I would say to the speaker that just be honest about it and say that, you know, that didn't go as well as we'd like and so we're not going to do that any longer right. instead of saying that it wasn't political because it clearly it was. Yeah. I think it's a nice there. touch that we're now having members actually do the invocation right. because they're they're in the trenches. They're That's in the right. And I don't understand why the speaker's running from the political comment because it seems like you know the people who were as fired up as anybody were the Republicans. So it's an opportunity. I mean, there was equal offense done. So right. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I, <laughs> it's I, a fair point. I think you should just embrace that and mm -hmm. take kudos with I it. I think because there may be a segment of the population, Native American, who feels like they feel very strongly about the issues that he spoke about. Yeah. And um, I don't think he wanted to offend them in any way by saying the issues he brought up were um, illegitimate somehow. It was just more of a time and place. So I think he probably yeah. was a little bit you know, careful about yeah. calling it a political action. It's a tough spot, yeah. for sure. That'll do it for our legislative look this week. The session ends, of course, February 20th. Up next, we talk to the producer of a podcast on the West Mesa murders. Then we're back with the line to talk about a lawsuit against Kirtland Air Force Base for the fuel spill cleanup. Really interesting segment now coming up all about a new podcast as you listen to this podcast. Everybody's got a podcast these days, right? But this is a really great endeavor by a local journalist to keep track of the West Mesa murders, uh, which those bodies, those skeletal remains, I should say, were found on the West Mesa 11 years ago, and it still has not been solved, those cases. And so this journalist wants to keep that in the spotlight and also look at where the investigation is now and where that's headed. Here now is that interview with New Mexico and Focus senior producer Matt Grubbs. In 2009, all of New Mexico watched in horror as investigators unearthed the remains of 11 women and one unborn child from Albuquerque's West Mesa. The murders are unsolved and the subject of a new podcast produced by a local journalist who found herself captivated by the case. NMIF producer Matt Grubbs asked Tierna Unruinos into the studio this week to talk about the Mesa and what she hopes the impact of her effort will be. This past weekend marked 11 years since um, those bodies were discovered. Um, why now, I guess, is, is the question. What got you interested in this? Um, so I worked in television in 2009 here locally um, when they were finding the bones and the remains of all the women. Um, so I had already worked in media. I knew the story really well. And then 10 years goes by, I've still worked in media, and you always hear a little bit about it, and every once in a while read up more, has anything happened? And it has just always stuck in the back of my mind. Um, and the 10-year anniversary was last year, and I thought, I need to do something more on this. <clears throat> and I am a huge fan of podcast. And I thought this is a perfect subject for a podcast. Could really delve into it more, um, spend more time on it, do things that you can't really do in traditional media when you only have a two, three minute window to do some sort of coverage. Something beyond just we don't have any suspects. And so that was really my goal. And so I thought, I'm going to do a podcast. I started doing investigations about a year ago, okay. um, interviewing, doing a lot of research, and building up to being able to launch on the anniversary, which is February 2nd. 
Sure, um, and that's oftentimes uh, what we see, you know, especially um, as something gets further and further out, we see the anniversary stories, yeah. things like that. Um, so you start to dig into this um, about a year ago and um, you focus, I would assume, um, on these two people that have been looked at for a long time. Yeah. Um, what is it about those two people? I guess first explain who they are and what is it about them that attracted the interest of the police? So um, the two persons of interest, which is a very important distinction, not suspects, they've never been named suspects, um, are Joseph Blea, who is still alive um, and he's in jail right now for quite a long time, um, not for anything related with this case, uh, for rape charges and a number of other things that have nothing to do with this case. And then Lorenzo Montoya. Lorenzo Montoya is now deceased. Um, he was killed in 2006 when he had um, killed Sharika Hill, who was an exotic dancer, um, call girl, and he had hired her to come to his house her boyfriend at the time couldn't get a hold of her and so came to the house and was looking for her, saw Lorenzo coming down the stairs, had the body thrown over his shoulder and had a gun. Wow. And um, so pointed at him, boyfriend kills Lorenzo. So that for Lorenzo, that's the connection there is that here he's sort of shown uh, he's done it now once. Right quite possibly could he have done it again yes there's a number of other things he lived within um, line of sight at the time of where the bodies were found or the bones were found about three miles roughly from the burial site and in 2006 there wasn't nearly the amount of development out there that there is now um, or even that there was in 2009 when they yeah, found those bodies. absolutely, totally. Um, and really that area, anyone who goes out to the west side now, you know, it, it's all residential housing and different um, uh, areas out there. That area in 2009 had sort of come to a standstill in terms of construction. Uh, that area where they were found, that land is owned by KB Homes and was owned by KB Homes back then in 2009. And 2008, 2009 was when the economic crash happened, construction halts. Um, so there's a lot of house, new housing, and then places that are slated for housing. And the bones were found in an area like that, that was slated for housing, but the construction had just stopped. So Lorenzo lived within line of sight of that. So there's a number of things that are connections there but have never really come to fruition in terms of enough evidence to be able to even posthumously charge him. Sure. Um, Joseph Blaya, same thing. There's a few connections. Um, he had a landscaping company and a tree tag had been found in the dig site from his company. He says he used to dump trash and waste out there out on the Mesa all the time which again is not unheard of People do that everywhere on the Mesa. People right. dump animal carcasses, trash, debris, tires. You can find all that kind of stuff out there. So again, that's not necessarily evidence that he did it. Um, so it's never really moved beyond persons of interest for either one of those. And there's been a few other persons of interest that fell off right away towards the beginning. And after that, there really haven't been any suspects named. And it, one of the difficulties there is that one of the people, they didn't even realize there was a crime 
Yeah. Until three years after he died. Yes. And so how do you investigate that? Um, so you start digging into this um, and you decide that there's enough for a podcast and, yeah. and that you want to do this. Who have you spoken to? And um, uh, I guess, what do those interviews look like? What will we hear? So I definitely have spoken to APD, um, more long format beyond just, do you have any suspects? Okay, great. Talk to him for a long time. What's the difference between persons of interest and suspect? Are you still getting tips? Who's still working on this? How do you feel about this case? What are new advancements in the ways that you are investigating this now? Um, talk to Safe Street, New Mexico. It's an organization that was started after the bones were found. Um, and they really work with women, specifically women, who are on the street um, and are more vulnerable population. They're not there to, you know, get them off the street. They are there to provide any kind of support so that women feel like there's a place that they can come to and talk to them if there's someone out that they're, they're afraid of. Um, it's basically a safe haven for women who are on the street. And so that's really important because at that time, this didn't exist. And maybe if it had, who knows, things could have been a little bit different. You said that there was sort of a word of mouth there network, was. but it was yeah. very, very informal. Yeah, I mean, it still is. There okay. is a word of mouth network now, but at least there is a place that they work really, really hard to make sure these women know if you feel threatened, if somebody is out there doing something and you hear a rumor or something has happened to you, you can come talk to us. Um, part of the problem, and the police absolutely admit this, is that <clears throat> a lot of these women who are on the streets and or um, maybe even tangentially on the streets and, and are in that vulnerable population feel that they can't go to the police if they are threatened or if something has happened. Um, they feel like either no one's going to listen to them or they're going to get in trouble. And so they don't say anything. And she wants to provide, uh, Christine Barber, she wants mm -hmm. to provide a safe place so that the women can come and say, and you're not going to get in trouble. And then they will go and make the determination, do we have enough, can we go to law enforcement, can we go to other organizations? Um, they put out a list called the bad guy list, and they try to circulate flyers every month. Um, car, make and model, what does the guy look like, be on the lookout, things like that. They post it on their website every month. They hand it out to all the women on the street so that people can be more than just, you know, word of mouth. Um, have talked to reporters from 2007, 2009, who knew that there was, before the bones were found, there was a list of women that at least some people were looking at saying like, hey, this, is, this isn't normal. Some people in law enforcement? <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, there was one detective in particular in 2007, Ida Lopez. She had a list um, and she called them my girls. And it was about 16, 17 women that she knew were missing and she was looking for them. I don't think she really thought it was going to be what it is. Um, and she is still on contract with APD on the 118th Street Tax Force, who that is the group that is still investigating this. So she's still on contract, um, but originally she was the one who 
noticed and was actively looking for these women. And these were skeletal remains that were found. Um, so it took them a while to identify them. Once they did, were any of the people who were found on her list? Yeah, about really? 10 of them. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the only one, I believe, um, that was not on her list was Solania Edwards. And she was um, 15 years old. She was a um, young girl from Oklahoma who had run away and had been in Aurora, Colorado, and then at some point made her way down to Albuquerque. Um, and she was African-American. She was the only African-American um, that was found. Um, and she was not on the list. She wasn't from here, so she wasn't, they didn't really know to put her on the list. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, so 11 years down the road from finding these, um, these women on the West Mesa, um, more since they were killed, obviously, um, we talked about sort of the two people who were persons of interest. Um, where does the case stand now? You mentioned the task force, so yeah. it's still open. Yeah. Um, you spent your first episode sort of investigating, okay, is this a cold case? Right. The police would very much like to say that it's not. Yeah. They say that it's not because they say <laughs> they receive hundreds of tips a year. I, yeah. Have um, they shown you any uh, of them? No. Okay. No. Um, and in fact, actually, every thing that is connected in any way to this case <clears throat> is off limits to the media. So if you were to uh, put in a FOIA request for anything connected to Joseph Blea or to Lorenzo Montoya, you would be told it's part of an active investigation. So you can't get anything. Um, they say that they have received hundreds of tips each year. I don't know what those tips are. Um, they've got about three detectives working it. They very much say that it's not a cold case. Are they working this full time? Could you tell? Okay. I don't know. Difficult to... Yeah. Okay. I mean, they are, I would say that this is one of many cases that they work. Okay. So yes, they are full time. I w not full time on this case. Okay. Um, they think this is the work of one person? Or they believe, yes. One group killer. of, okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, we just have about a minute left. Um, so some of the nuts and bolts of the podcast. First yeah. episode is what, like 10 minutes long? Yeah, about 10 minutes. Is um, that what we'll see with each? No, the remaining episodes are uh, will be longer, 25 to 30 minutes. Okay. Um, include more interviews, um, do expansion really on um, certain aspects of the case, who the women were. And also something really to keep in mind, and this won't be the first time it's said, but it's very much believed by law enforcement and a number of other uh, groups, organizations, and families that there are still more women out there. And so um, that's another thing that APD is actively looking at is if there are other women out there, where are they? Wow. Well, Tierna Unru Enos, thank you so much. Um, the podcast is called The Mesa. Yes. And it's pretty widely available. Yep. Anywhere where you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. And we end things this week with the line. And they are looking at a lawsuit that was filed by several organizations this week against Kirtland Air Force Base. And it's a lawsuit to get the jet fuel cleanup, spill cleanup, um, moved forward in a faster pace. Of course, this is something that we've all been talking about for over a decade now. The Air Force says they're doing due diligence to clean it up. 
But this lawsuit is an indication that not everybody feels that is happening in the timely manner that it should. So the line panelists talk about this. And it's a fascinating one when you think about the military installations in New Mexico and what they mean to us. And listen, as Dan Foley points out, the challenges in terms of the state trying to hold Kirtland Air Force Base or other military installations accountable when things like this happen, environmental catastrophes. Uh, there's there's a lot of rub there about what the state is even able to do there as well as our congressional delegation and what they should be doing. So with that, we'll kick off the end of the show this week with The Line. Hope you have a great week, everyone. Welcome back to The Line, a coalition made up of two community groups, three lawmakers and three Albuquerque residents is suing the U.S. Air Force and the Defense Department. They say Kirtland Air Force Base failed to adequately respond to a decades-old fuel leak into the groundwater below the military installation. The leak was discovered more than 20 years ago, although by that time it had been seeping into the groundwater for decades. The complaint says the cleanup is taking too long. The Air Force counters that it's making steady progress and the process is slow because they're not taking any shortcuts. And Laura, there have been community groups and meetings and liaisons from the base for over the years. Why the lawsuit now? I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about that. Yeah. You're an attorney. Why, why now? There's been plenty of, plenty of opportunity to do this well, before. Well, I think they're, they're just at, the, at their wit's end. They're not seeing enough progress. And I yeah. think that for residents of that area, um, it's a huge concern. I mean, it's seeping into the groundwater. It has been doing so for, like you said, decades. Um, right. They discovered it in 1999. Mm -hmm. and so we're talking about an issue that the, that the Air Force and Department of Defense have known about for a long time, and mm -hmm. it's not like they lack resources right. in terms of other you know, operations that they do. Obviously, there's, there's um, you know, national security issues and concerns there in terms of their budget, but mm -hmm. this is something they've been aware of for a very long time, and I think that the community groups aren't seeing enough progress at all. Right. That's you know, Dave, the, the, the prospect of PFAS has grown over the past, uh, that chemical that's so problematic right. from these situations. The last three or four years, a better understanding, maybe that's part of the reason why we're seeing a hastening of I, I mean, of this. clearly, you know, it is a dangerous situation and yeah. people have, I, I mean, I always think if you go to litigation, you're sort of at the last exit on the freeway. Mm -hmm. And so they went to litigation and, you know, litigation, it's a, you know, well, you would like it, but, you know, it does, it does tend to maybe slow the process, but also might make it more thorough. Mm -hmm. And I think they're, they, they, I mean, we don't know exactly what the motives are. They could be looking for more information or they could just be trying to force their hand and saying like, you know, they want to, was it at federal court? They want them to say, do this and we right. want it done. That's for right. the record, I don't like decree. litigation. Yes. Sometimes it's necessary. Right. I don't That's right. like litigation. Well, we all, none of us like it. That's right. Yeah. Just a point of clarification, PFAS, of course, is our other military installations. This one is ethylene dibromide, known as EDB, a carcinogen. And they all stink, you know, whatever they are, they're mm -hmm. awful. But the idea, we, it's not that we've been doing nothing, Dan. The state has been getting tougher and a little bit tougher and a little bit tougher as the years have gone along. And I'm always curious why the state hasn't taken the absolute lead on this well, what and can the really state, wielded what can the, the hammer. State do? I mean, those are federal <laughs> installations. They're, mm -hmm. I mean, they're literally immune from state intervention. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, if you remember back when they were talking about closing Cannon Air Force Base, mm -hmm. it was one of the thoughts that President, uh, Bush had about turning it into a refinery because you didn't have to ask for any state EPA stuff. You but isn't isn't the it. state suing Cannon um, the, over PFAS? They, they are, they are, okay. but it, you, you see where it's going. I think the problem is, and I think the reason the lawsuits come about mm -hmm. is if this was 
you know, the Air Force base at Miramar in, you know, Anaheim, California, if this was in San Diego, if this was one of the bases on the East Coast and it wasn't leaching, if this was leaching into the La Cueva School District area, mm. there'd probably be some different, some different actions. Right. Um, I think, you know, to the point that, that Laura brought up, and I think she's right, you know, <clears throat> We're talking trillions of dollars these guys spend every year. They can spend $500 to buy a hammer. They can spend $700 to That's buy right. a tire that you and That's I could right. buy at Walmart <laughs> for a buck 25. Right. Um, you know, they got to get serious about this. It's it's not only hurting people, killing people. It's going to have generational effects. And they mm -hmm. did it. I mean, it's their fault. I right. mean, it's their property. They damaged it. They should fix it, and it should be a priority. And I think the reason people are upset is because if this was any place other than little old country bumpkin, New Mexico, uh, I think it'd be higher on the priority to get it fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a, a question that should be brought up to our delegation. I mean, why ah. are you guys not getting this stuff right. to the forefront? That's I mean, right. this is something since '99 we've had. It, this isn't. I mean, you know, we can blame Trump, and people will. But I mean, we've had three presidents since they found out about this, mm -hmm. and none of them have made it a priority to get this done and they should. That's a good point. Now the Air Force, they say they've treated more than 800 million gallons of contaminated water. They have those four extraction wells mm -hmm. that were the big controversy a few years ago. 162 monitoring wells now evaluating this EDB plume. Mm -hmm. But when you hear things like plume, right. I mean things are growing, growing. you know? it's right. And you want to know, um, I, I, when this, this topic came up, uh, we decide what topics we're going to discuss, and I was thinking, why do they have me on talking about this? Because I don't really know much about. Um, and, but then I realized that as a citizen, right. that I should know about it. I actually live in that neighborhood, and it is important for us to both well, thank these uh, organizations that have come forward to say, mm -hmm. you know, it's been too long. It's you know, since 1999, um, I learned some phrases, monitored natural attenuation is what they're saying is mm -hmm. that, you know, um, it, it's, it's going to just, you know, correct itself. Obviously, it hasn't done that. And we don't want to study it and study it and study it. They already know that there is an issue. So it should fix it. The EPA That's is right. rolling back standards instead of, you know, exercising their duty to regulate. Right. And so they are going to have to be forced to do it with a, a decree. Mm -hmm. You know, Laura, when you think, pull back and think about the overall picture about literally the price we've paid to have so many military installations here. There's been a lot of this over the years. I mean, from Santa Fe to, you know, Cannon and, uh, you know, every part of the state seems to have had, you know, uranium mining, you know, on the grants area. How do we balance all of this? What we get out of our military folks who we love being here, they supply lots of jobs and lots to our bottom line. But there's a price we've had to pay for this as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it brings a lot of benefits, obviously. And I think, I mean, I certainly support having, you know, um, installations here. I think they, they have ripple effects economically. And I think mm -hmm. it's an important um, asset to have here in the state. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of federal funding as a result of that right. into the state. And that makes a big difference. Sure. But I think when it comes to um, environmental regulation, um, they need to have a more proactive approach. They mm -hmm. can't be passive about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the point that the group is trying to make is that, you know, they've been very passive in their approach. They've been very, um, and of course, the, the Air Force is saying, well, we're, we're, we're being deliberate. We're trying to be thorough. But it's been a very long time. And so I think this group is really fed up and they're looking for action. Right. And we'll see what the judge what I the think, judge you know, Gina, I think, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's important is to separate, you know, you talk about normal wear and tear, right? right? I mean, we expect there to be some normal wear and tear sure. on the environment and our communities. And we're willing to make that trade, right? We're willing to give up property, really? yeah. give up, you know, for normal wear and tear. Sure. I mean, people love to have, but when you start finding out that, well, this is above and beyond, right? That this right. is a legitimate problem. This is not the normal amount of fuel 
that just leaked mm -hmm. into the ground by fueling airplanes and people spilling it. This is an inability to manage the tanks that were in the ground, That's and right. it was dumping an unregulated amount. This wouldn't have happened, not saying that the private sector is better, wouldn't have happened in the private sector because somebody would have been saying, where's all my gas That's going, right? That's right? So, I mean, the military right. just, you know, just keep filling it, just keep filling it. That's right. And so I think that, I think the frustration for me, and I, I think Laura's right on, you know, we, we are willing to give up some things to have these opportunities in our community, right. whether it's the jets flying over, you know, housing problems, it doesn't matter, and we welcome all of that. Right. What we're not happy with is when it goes above and beyond the normal wear and tear, mm -hmm. and then the response from the government is, well, that's normal wear and tear, you should have known it was coming. I think that's when people get a little frustrated, and that's where we are in this example. That's right. Dave, yeah. pick up on what Dan mentioned earlier about our delegation. That seems to be an, an opening there. Right, well, so, you mm -hmm. know, but I think we should be clear, for every dollar we send in federal tax dollars to Washington, we get back $1.73. Right. And New Mexico has a long history. I mean, we birthed the atom bomb. There's no question. And we, maybe we weren't aware of the consequences that were coming. But, you know, we are, we have made a deal. And I think it's, you know, it's a very clear deal. It's all written out with the federal government. But when the federal government is caught, they should fix it and move on. You know, this right. idea, let's stretch it out. Let's litigate it. Let's actually avoid fixing it. Just fix it and be done with it. You know, right. it's like, it can be that easy. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we yeah. should do that. Thanks you all for thinking about this stuff and digging in absolutely and then again this week. We'll see you at the table soon.